Namaskar. The premise of a polity resides in its people, and yet there is more often than not a bid to encapsulate it, to codify it. The Indian constitution arose from extensive consultations and deliberations, and yet there is scope for reforms in myriad ways. To discuss this and more, today we have with us Dr. M. R. Venkatesh. Dr. M. R. Venkatesh is a renowned advocate and economist, specializing in economic criminal law and anti-money laundering law. He has authored various books such as Retaining Balance, The Eternal Way, and is a respected panelist in leading primetime shows on national television in the country. He has been vocal on issues of corruption and the state of governance in India. I would like to welcome you to the Infinity Foundation, sir. Thank you very much. Pleasure is mine. So, sir, the constitution uh, is said to be the supreme law of the Indian Republic. Uh, you have been advocating for revisiting of the Indian constitution. So, which elements or aspects uh, would you particularly and primarily like to revisit? <clears throat> okay, and this is a very um, fundamental question that I get confronted with. It is not that the cup of tea is lacking uh, a teaspoon of sugar, that you have to add or delete something. <laughs> to me, it looks to be a genetically flawed document. So, my revisiting or revisitation should culminate in rewriting of the constitution. De novo. We have to, of course, I don't say that we have to, uh, there is no, nothing in this constitution that needs to be taken up. No, I don't say those type of outlandish statements. I say that structurally there is a flaw. Why do I say this? Now, just as we were getting independence, there was uh, this United Nations was getting formed, 1945-46. And Article 23 of the UN puts about, uh, talks about this uh, Security Council. And I think Article 27 talks about the five nations, which are the permanent members who have what is called as a veto right. And who are the five members? Britain, America, France, uh, then you have Russia, then you have China. Britain in 1642, America in 1776, France in 1789, uh, Russia in 1917, and China in 1949. All of them had revolutions. And barring China, all the four, the other four are European powers. And the Chinese revolution is modeled again on the French and the Russian revolution. So you must understand the world or the power is basically Eurocentric. The definition of power, state, concept of United Nations, who, who has the right to veto, and all these flows from the Roman Empire that the centrifugal and the centri, uh, centripetal forces, as they say, and the um, empire has got all the rights to civilize the barbarians, a phrase that was used repeatedly by the British and at a very long period of time, even after we got independence, that, that is one of the questions posed to the civil servants in India as to how British rule benefited India. And it took uh, almost 78 years post-independence to come to a figure of around $45 trillion that is the loot by the British from India. So the long and short of it is, this idea that we have got about, from the French Revolution or the American Revolution. And we got so carried away during the independence. 
that we said, look at France, look at Germany, look at Italy, look at Ireland. We saw the world over, but we did not look inwards. And we borrowed, we the people from the American constitution. We borrowed liberty, fraternity, equality from the French, added justice to it in the preamble. I'm not saying these are not ignoble, uh, these are ignoble thoughts. These are absolutely to be, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you need to keep a distance. No, I'm not saying this. But till 1945-46, in fact, the Quit India Movement Resolution talks about establishment of Ram Rajya. In fact, Ram Rajya was the clarion call given by Mahatma Gandhi. Right. They were talking about village republics, rightly or wrongly. But Ambedkar says that, uh, you know, village is a den of ignorance. Uh, Nehru Fufu's, uh, Mahatma Gandhi's idea about village republics. And we started borrowing from world over and created a constitution that was basically done in a hurry. And I don't blame the founding fathers of the Indian constitution because they had two choices before. One was to preserve an existing order. One was to indulge in further chaos. Already you had partition, you had so many other problems that was grappling or uh, the nation was confronting. So they, they chose order to further chaos. And in that order, that the constitution of India is primarily a rehash of the 1935 Government of India Act. So if you look at it from all aspects, that you find that you have borrowed from the French, you have borrowed from the Americans, and you don't even realize today People like Os Guinness and others who are writing books after books and trying to figure out that how the American revolu revolution is distinct from the French revolution. All revolutions is to create a state. All revolution is to give liberty. All revolution is to give freedom to the people. Okay. The French give fraternity, uh, equality and liberty. But liberty is the least of their problems. Whereas <laughs> Americans revolution is for liberty, the individual liberty. Right. They, they look at state as some sort of an uh, intruder in personal liberty, even today. But whereas the French look at the state for social justice. Now, if you have borrowed, we the people from the American constitution, and if you have borrowed fraternity, legal, uh, uh, fraternity, equality, and liberty from the French, are you for social justice or are you for equality? So there are so many multiple questions. So that is why at every stage we are we are uh, in sort of a confusion. And that confusion manifests itself in Article 1 of the Constitution. It says, Bharat, India, that is Bharat. No other country has two names. Rajesh alias Raju. Now, this type of things don't happen in any other country. We, we wanted to cognize our civilization, civilization in past. But we also said that we will st start from a clean state and ended up in between the two, neither here nor there. So there was there's too much of confusion in the constitution and that we need to address. And that will bring about the fundamental question is, who are we? Bharatiyas or Indians? Are we supposed to be having a civilizational connect with our past? If so, how does it, the state should help us? And if not, 
let us all agree and say that yes let us disconnect ourselves with the past and start the case and your opening remark that we had wide ranging consultation or words to that effect in the constitution of being framed uh, i would uh, beg to disagree because 299 people ended up with the constituent assembly right and of which 60 70 people died or probably did not participate or actually uh, once pakistan was formed they also refused to participate so hardly 200 220 people were the people who finally ended up in the constituent assembly uh, for at that time we had a population of 350 million now uh, and uh, Uh, which would be corresponding to modern american uh, population now if 220 people in america decide and come about with certain things today's standards would america accept it would the modern world accept it so we need surely for the scope the dimensions for the areas that we have missed the areas that we borrowed all these things make the constitution a genetically flawed one so i I I I want to revisit it de novo. Yes. And I think that idea of proportionality and the idea of contradictions that you have beautifully put forth in your response I think that is a uh, very very important because that also comes from the other uh, revolutions that happened in the past for instance even the english uh, you know the so called revolution or the civil war that happened and uh, subsequently mentioned about the french revolution and various others uh, and it was a patchwork which you know at times uh, needs to be looked at very closely because uh, it it does have a very big impact on the lives of the people uh, and the way in which the state is evolving and we as a people are you know moving forward um there is another point that you raise in some of your writings and uh, you've spoken on before Uh, and which relates to the idea of um, you know the beauty of the indian civilization being in decentralization right and the onus of uh, civilization strides being uh, not on some proverbial monolith or an ombudsman um, you know science and culture being expressed in temples for instance uh, social and cultural capital being so central to the indian way uh, of life um and yet post independence uh, the role of the state has been front and center uh, uh, too much in certain you know instances and Uh, over certain periods um, so how can we align ourselves with our civilization ethos uh, on this when it comes to uh, economics politics and society <clears throat> uh, article 12 of the constitution talks about the state without defining what it should do and more importantly without telling us what it should not do. so we have conjured a state which is omnipotent omnipresent and omniscient so a state can probably take any avatha and come into your bedroom and say what you should do and what you should not do right. and and dictate terms and probably prosecute you penalize you it could do anything now is this the state that we want is this type of state probably suits the french <laughs> but definitely not the americans the americans would be aghast and i am sure we would be aghast now but even the even by the american standard which is a lower standard as far as the french is concerned french are concerned the the, the power of the state to me i would say that there is this assumption that these all these idea of state all these idea of european uh, what we call as the european civilization or the western civilization which have brought about the idea of state in the modern context 
flows from the thoughts of Thomas Hobbes and others who have held that man primarily is a person who is of a beastly nature. They don't trust humans. And this, I would say, comes from the Christian thought that every man is a born sinner. And hence, you are, and in Christianity, you can't, however pious you may be, however good you may be, unless you are redeemed by an external force, mm. which is Christ, you cannot attain salvation. And ditto in politics. And in fact, uh, there is a book, uh, I forgot the name of the book, which I have referred to in my uh, retaining balance, where they have brought about this issue, where the author has brought about this issue uh, very significantly. He says, any Western idea is, whether it is Sigmund Freud, Richard Dawkins, Thomas Hobbes, uh, or Adam Smith in their respective fields, or even Karl Marx, they have always believed that an external impressed force is what will correct the humans. Whereas in our civilization, it is always the cells, elevating the cells. In fact, uh, the original name of Mahabharata is, uh, uh, you know, it goes by the name of Jaya, then Jaya. Jaya means victory over self. Vijaya is victory over others. Jaya is the original name given to Mahabharata, wherein you fight your own demons in your mind and win your own battle. That is the greatest battle. So it is it is self versus an external force. These are two civilizational contrasts in the very abstract terms. Now you create a state, and that is why your question is very alluring, because you are asking what should be the role of the state. Now, an omnipotent state may suit the Russians. In an omnipresent state, uh, suit the Chinese, but it definitely does not suit us. So we require, and Ram Rajya was Rajya where there was no Ram. We, we, our our idea of Ram Rajya is less of Ram, more of Rajya, where where the governance happens because of our own self discipline, of our own responsibilities, of our own duties. So these are things that, for instance, when the American Constitution was being written. Madison and others uh, went to extraordinary depths to look into classical antiquity, which was, and they they adopted the uh, Greco-Roman writings as if it was a part of the American one. Right. Whereas we did not look at, say, Shanti Parva. Yes. We did not look at Ram Rajya. In fact, we consciously avoided everything right from 1945 or 46. Until such time, the clarion call was only all these things are, are reference to the classi uh, uh, classical Indian antiquity. Whereas post 47, suddenly we took a U-turn and we, uh, I would put it uh, in a very colorful term as uh, we uh, unformatted the hard disk and we said <laughs> we are no longer connected with our past and we yeah. would try to uh, draw a new, civil, a new nation state which would, which would have nothing to do with the past. Now, that could possibly, uh, even the Americans, it was it could have been possible with the Americans. The Americans did not do it. The Americans did not do it because they somehow conjured uh, ways and means of uh, trying to, uh, uh, you know, one of certain civilizations, which are not part of this. But uh, there is our own civilization we gave up. So then to answer your question in summary is that, yes, we require a state, but that state is not the state of what we call under Article 12, we require a residuary state and we should allow the self to elevate.
and that would be in resonance in resonance to the civilizational values and ethos and i think the current government uh, you know with its emphasis on atmanirbharta on the emphasis on uh, more governance less government is kind of making strides in that direction um, another aspect that the current government has been looking at is in terms of the mercantile in terms of uh, you know uh, profits growth um, nehru once told jrd tata never talk to me about the word profit it is a dirty word uh, thereafter tata's air india uh, uh, and the in insurance outfit were nationalized of course we know about that uh, birla had to seize his plans to set up a steel plant in durgapur because um, nehru thought that was a public works um, you know job um, so how do we move beyond the vestigial uh, nehruvian socialism that still remains in india's uh, economic governance and thinking <clears throat> uh, if nehru did not like the word profits <laughs> the mahatma did not like the word technology right so the founding fathers of the modern indian state one did not like profits one did not like technology and gandhi ji never had problems with profits and nehru did not have problem with technology he wanted all modern technology but he wanted only loss making private private sector to make losses gandhi ji wanted all profits but he only wanted it with the charka so this gives a very very peculiar situation where both nehru and gandhi did not chose the right path now this as uh, somebody like gurmurthy ji always says was uh, to a civilization which venerated goddess lakshmi now where else do you find a goddess of wealth and venerated so very highly we we, we do lakshmi puja every year during diwali and what not that is the civilization dimension but being prosperous was our uh a uh, forte or our strength we were great traders we were great manufacturers we went to distant land and conquered on trade and commerce we did not uh, probably it is often said we didn't send our armies but our our uh, trading community the vaisyas were all over the place and they were trading and trading with gumption and winning world over and they were giving the best of our manufactured product which was available you don't trade only being a, you know a dubai or a, a singapore can be a pass through port but right. india was not a pass through port it was a manufacturing hub and angus madison and others have proved that india had something close to 25 to 35% share in the global gdp from the beginning of common era till say uh, the british landed here so we had a huge uh, uh, civilization connect with prosperity we had a huge connection with uh, uh manufacturing we had a huge connection with uh, venerating wealth but on december 13th 1946 so friday and I, it is 13th the friday so you can understand uh, i have a phobia of friday the 13th right. because nehru moves in the constituent assembly debate the aims and objectives of the constitution that is the resolution he puts forward and in that though the word socialism he puts in eight points the word socialism does not figure in that but in during the speech when he is introducing the resolution nehru says i believe in socialism and not only he says i believe in socialism he says the i want the world to be you know of a socialist order and somewhere down the line that uh, intellectual arrogance that i can mold and modify society which is the bane of all leftists <laughs> that i will i will somehow or other 
have my own ideas thrust on you, which is basically an imperialistic idea, a superiority complex. And this comes from the Christian world. The Christian world believes that it has found the ultimate religion and Rome or America, the modern day America, which mirrors Rome, has the same idea that, look, I, I know what is best for you and I will give you the prescription. And socialism was one such prescription thrust by Nehru on us. And an unsuspecting country, you know, a nation, gullibly swallowed what Nehru offered and dished up. This, I think, is something that we need to reverse. It's, so this could be the next biggest, uh, you know, I said the genetically flawed constitution. This is one DNA of the constitution, the chromosome, which I think has crept in uh, when it was never thought about. Despite the fact, I think on November 15, uh, 1948, if my dates are correct, uh, uh, Ambedkar makes a very serious charge on Nehru and says that you and I cannot decide on the economic policy for the future. But despite it, Nehru goes ahead and, you know, Ambedkar dies and uh, it's free for all for uh, Nehru after 50s. And then by 55, he brings in the Avadi resolution. He not only wants a socialist order within the government, he wants a socialist order within the society. You know, he conjures up various images till the Chinese came and gave him a whack on his back and uh, he came to his census in 62. And then it was all down in for him by the time he could not... Uh, uh, revive himself, much less revive the country. So, and uh, Indira Gandhi was more Nehru than Nehru himself. And uh, then there was a downward slide till we reached 1991, till we touched the bottom and uh, we had to uh, again start of building brick by brick. So, the long and start of it is socialism is something that we need to jettison. And that's one point that we need to uh, revisit in the constitution. Because uh, whenever I stand in the court, as a lawyer, the image of the state in the minds of uh, the judiciary is this is a welfare state. The state is not there to do welfare. The state can do welfare, can do welfare, but it cannot be a welfare state, which are two different things. By, so you have uh, a state government like Tamil Nadu distributing TVs, you know, freebies. Now you have all sorts of things coming in uh, without even you know, recklessly borrowing from our future generation to pray for these freebies. So these type of things is what we need to debate. Right. Absolutely. And I think um, uh, it's it's a very interesting point that you mentioned, because particularly in the context of a um, set of uh, proposals, which came out in 1944-45, which is uh, the title, I think, is a brief memorandum outlining a plan of economic development for India. Uh, the short uh, version is the Bombay plan, uh, which was put forth by eminent industrialists like J.R.D. Tata and Ghanshyam Das Birla, uh, which placed emphasis on import substitution and industrialization. Uh, it also touched upon some of the uh, aspects of welfare schemes uh, in a rather comprehensive and nuanced manner. So do you think that we missed the bus somewhere uh, when we uh, went past that and went with this uh, Nehruvian bandwagon, so to say? And how can we move ahead from here? Uh, you already mentioned a little bit about the overemphasis on socialism, uh, but this balance of um, well, in a manner of speaking, being compassionate to, uh, you know, the, the citizens of the country, uh, looking at their welfare, uh, and yet not going into this overemphasis on protectionism, into this overemphasis on uh, the state-heavy kind of economics that uh, we have been seeing uh, towards a more comprehensive framework. <clears throat> See, we have yet to figure out the sweet spot, the balance mm -hmm. between welfareism 
and and what i would say that uh, the free functioning of the markets it's a very delicate balance the sweet spot exists but it exists in a very narrow compass and it is very difficult to find out and because you have to understand if you slip out a bit either ways democracy is so ruthless that you lose elections and if you try to do too much of balancing the other other way around if you overbalance you find that the growth is uh, badly hit so we are we are as a nation we have not yet reconciled ourselves to certain fundamentals and one of the fundamentals is what the state should do and what it should not do now can you believe that we are now the courts are discussing whether marital rape is uh, an offense or not in india Now, now these are issues where you will have then there will be a law and then you step in and say what type of uh, uh, evidences has to be produced now why does the state why does the court get into this because the state is uh, not a defined the powers of the state are not defined if the state says i will not step into certain things and this after supreme court in putasami has held privacy to be a fundamental right a fundamental now when a husband and wife get into a problem that would be a problem it's in the bedroom i'm not saying there are no problems between the uh, husband and the wife in the bedroom but should the state step in should the state step in to arbitrate in that type of situation this is the question uh, now these are the things that we don't discuss and these are these are things that are still not at defined and that that you will find repeatedly getting several stalwarts in the constituent assembly repeatedly pointing out that we are moving away from dharma there is nothing called dharma in this constitution there is no reference to classical antiquity so everywhere you will find that there is a disconnect and and when it comes to industrialization we thought that when when industry india becomes prosperous or india becomes uh, industrialized nehru was so chary about profits as you really rightly pointed out that he would not allow businessmen to make profits and his and his daughter went one step ahead that you had fera you had mrtp you had income tax law you had wealth tax you had gift tax you had cofe posa a series of uh, uh, legislations wherein nobody could even believe that he could be rich by working within the four corners of law if you look into the 60s and 70s bollywood movies you would find the rich man invariably being a smuggler whose daughter will be wooed by the uh, chief protagonist the hero and the, the there was no possibility of him becoming rich without breaking the law so if you create a, a mentality that i have to see to that that my citizens are kept in poverty so that i will give freebies and i will be the santa claus during election time you know distributing goodies here and there and democracy lends itself to this type of nonsense and unless we put an end to it in a very calibrated i am not saying all welfare should be stopped but welfare plus democracy makes it a whiskey and a lassi combination which which is a very dangerous cocktail that you can consume neither and it is it is dynamiting us from within so we need to go back and see as to what could be the welfare contours of a state 
now if a state gives con uh, you know some sort of uh, grains or help somebody during flood earthquake natural calamity understandable but that must be for a limited period now when you tax at 80% 90% and of course today we have woken up and we have reduced our taxes but i still feel that even the modi government has to you know use the headroom the fiscal headroom and reduce further tax both indirect and direct i'm not only talking about uh, direct taxes both direct and indirect and when it reduces it it also has to reduce its own role and once it reduces its role its expenditure comes down and once that is done you automatically see that the people of the country will have to somehow or the other find ways of earning their bread right nowadays in fact you will be shocked you will be shocked mrunjay when i say this luckily during the pandemic we had uh, the facility of watching various sports functioning in india and one of the lordships in one of the courts said if a person were to be supinely indifferent to himself and count stars day in and out it will be the it will be the duty of the state to provide him three square meals a day wow right <laughs> oh i don't blame again the lordships because their idea is they don't understand economics they don't understand where from the money comes in they believe that the money can be printed and the government is stingy by not printing notes so this this is what is the state of affairs in our judiciary which is which is the smaller order of faults but the larger one is we have spawned a state in our minds that tomorrow my toilet doesn't work i have somebody i have to file a writ and somebody will come in and do it if there is no water in the taps somebody will step in no we have conjured an image of a state which is there at every step and then the state creates excesses <laughs> and obviously it will then we then start talking about fundamental rights our uh, our individual liberties being taken up right absolutely absolutely <clears throat> and uh, that's that's the things i mean so and there is there's is an interesting interface between uh, you know again going back to decentralization um, uh, ethos and values because uh, i remember you once wrote on how indians uh, interestingly have achieved um, higher savings rate post liberalization which is a kind of a theoretical contradiction and uh, this was due to an age old emphasis on um, you know savings which underlie the historical resilience of economics of the indian people uh, as was observed i think in the 2000 17 report of the household finance committee of the rbi uh, and one of the uh, you know observations being that the future evidence that traditional and cultural factors are strong determinants of observed allocations uh, and there was a low investment in high risk instruments with share of investment in high risk bonds being about 3% um, and so how do you see the state and future of balance of this consumerism and savings and more importantly there are certain integral and inherent indian values and ethos uh, which we as a people um, have you know carried forward over the ages when it comes to economics when it comes to finances and how can that inform um, you know our our national our uh, people's kind of you know economics and finances going forward <clears throat> now see uh, that is what a state has to do now we have a ministry of culture right and ministry of culture culture is what we are civilization is what we were mm-hmm. put it very differently and actually we require a ministry of civilization not a ministry of culture 
And Ministry of Culture believes that it has to put in some archaeological survey of India in certain places and monitor it and nothing more. We need to figure out how much of our culture is fashioning our economics. And uh, in my view, as I, as I wrote in Retaining Balance, it's a substantial part of our economics is fashioned by our culture, of our ethos, of our upbringings, of our traditional family values. People save and save in substantial amount. And what, what is that the government does? The government borrows vast amount of money from household savings and says that it is running the government under a fiscal deficit. And I have no issues with the fiscal deficit. I have problems with the revenue deficit. Revenue deficit is something that you don't even put the money even for earning the revenue income. The, the revenues and the expenses don't even match. And since there is a deficit and you pump in more money on to run the government. In other words, government running every day is a loss. Technically speaking, if I have to put it in a very crude language, but government cannot, unlike Nehru, <laughs> who looks at profit and loss at every damn thing, we can't be looking at it. So we, we sustain this. But who sustains the government? It is the household savings that gives money to the banks and banks in turn lend money to the government. This is how Indian economy is being uh, at a very macro level being funded. But does the government ever recognize that there is a huge family uh, which saves there are uh, something around uh, 26, 260 million family households uh, in India, roughly. And uh, they are the people who are saving and saving big time. And they are putting money into your stock market, into the corporates, into the banks. And in turn, all this money comes to the government. Now, if this realization is there, now if you go back and look at the income tax, the 1961 Act, which has been amended more than 8,000 times, uh, I have lost count of it, how many times it has been amended in the last 60 years, which has an uncanny resemblance to the 1922 Income Tax Act, which has an uncanny resemblance to the British Income Tax Act. The British may have a different reason for taxation, the Income Tax Act. But do we have to have the same taxation principles? Now, uh, I think it was November 17, 1948, Nandini uh, Ranjan Sarkar committee was formed to look into the taxation. They came with a report within 20 days, probably by 5th or 6th of December, 1948. And they said the state will have the powers uh, to tax. Article 265 was uh, drafted and no tax will be levied without the force of law. And they picked up, cherry, cherry picked everything from the 1935 Act. So what would be taxed by the state, what would be taxed by the center was only the bifurcation. Now, why should you tax? How much should you tax? Why should you not tax certain things? It was never debated. Now, you, all, all that was done was the state has a right to tax, so it will ta tax itself to glory. So we never decided. For I'm taking a very, uh, because tax is the umbilical part between uh, the citizenry and the state. Now, if that is not properly established. Why should I pay 30% tax? Why not 60%? Why not 10%? Now, these are things that you have to determine after determining the role of the state. You can't keep it so flexible that you will, uh, in fact, at one point of time in the 70s, old time chartered accountants are never uh, shy of pointing this out. At some point of time, along with the wealth tax, the rate of tax exceeded 104%. Oh, right. 
Okay. So, uh, uh, beyond 2 lakh rupees income. Right. Okay. Right. Of course, we have come down uh, uh, fairly uh, away from the, that type of nonsense. But even today, if somebody wants you to tax at 60%, nothing that the constitution prevents somebody from taxing you at 60%, 70%. So, all that is because we have not decided what should be the design of the state. Right. So, if that is determined, the rest will follow. Right. And, and that brings, again, uh, us back to the uh, point of expenditure as well and where, uh, you know, the pri private public, uh, you know, uh, uh, partnerships or uh, the private expenditure, public expenditure, um, uh, and also, of course, corporate governance, which is, uh, you know, another debate altogether. Um, so how do you see us moving forward in terms of the existing, uh, you know, laws and frameworks uh, when it comes to facilitation of um, more kind of um, a collaboration between uh, the private entities, uh, the government itself, um, and the governance thereof uh, in terms of the policy that we require uh, and the general thinking, the vision that we require going forward. <clears throat> See, I would put it this way. And it is something like this that the, the bureaucracy in India <laughs> believes that it has taken a take up, a contract of all that is right and wrong within India. And I humorously put it to my friends in the government that there is a new Varnashrama in government. <laughs> okay, what is that? The IAS screws the rich. Mm -hmm. The IRS has taken to on itself to screw the middle class. The IPS screws the lower class. Mm -hmm. Now, I, a middle class guy, would not be afraid of the IPS officer. Because he knows that this guy would have some contacts, so he would he would behave with me decently. But I can get screwed by the income tax officer by sending me a notice and say six years ka notice to bring all the details, this, that. Then I will be spending my next six years to wriggle out of the mess. Yeah. <clears throat> but the corporate honchos, the Tatas, the Brillas, Ambani's, Adani's, they are scared about secretary power, secretary. Uh, railway secretary this because one policy comma here or a full stop there that they change can mean something totally different for them. The point I'm laboring on is the state still feels that its citizens are not to be trusted, not to be encouraged. Now, if there is somebody who has a problem, now let us assume during COVID, several corporates had problems in gathering revenue, they fell into the NPA trap. Now, of course, there was omnibus uh, clauses and other things, but that would be specific. Uh, there were, uh, you know, there were uh, this uh, uh, 20 trillion dollar, 20 trillion rupee packages and other things. But there was nothing that they have handled the businesses, like what METI does in say, Japan. Now, why doesn't we, why, have you ever seen even the state government? State governments are was State government believes that every project you put in this state, you require 3%, 5%, depends on the party and depends on the uh, chief minister. So there is an anti-business bias. And because of which there is an anti-prosperity bias in the country. Now, how do we, how do we settle this? So one way of settling it is that many of these laws Many of these, uh, what I call as uh, uh, statutes that we have framed in the last 30, 40 years, 
by and large are only adversarial in nature they are not cooperative the reason why they are not cooperative is the state does not trust the citizen the citizen does not trust the state so if i have a problem in my accounts for the last say two years i'm not able to show profits because of certain things and i'm a listed company perforce i am compelled to fudge my accounts rather than get handheld by the government for certain things mm. now on one hand we say we are a welfare state on the one hand we say we want the state to come into our bedrooms but suddenly we also say no no we are, we are believe in market forces if you have done certain things you please handle it all by yourself in other words we are not clear as to what we want to do with our laws and how much do we trust our citizens and and uh, till we get into that equation that that equation between citizens and the state being uh, formulated in the right earnest i think this question will be a challenge to us absolutely um besides the term socialist um uh, secular is another term that has been that was added to the preamble uh, in, of the indian constitution um by the 42nd amendment in 1976 uh and yet we live in a time uh, in times when uh, abusing hindu gods and goddesses by celebrities such as sayoni ghosh uh, is normalized by with election tickets by a major political party like the trinamool congress uh, while quoting or speaking of uh, them is regarded as problematic um so So what kind of secularism are we talking of and how do we move past this crass double speak Mithunjay <clears throat> you will remember i spoke of december 13th 1946 it was friday yes where the aims and objectives uh, resolution was passed by nehru and i pointed out socialism didn't figure in that uh, eight points but i think the fourth or the fifth point was believe it or not there will be adequate safeguards for the minorities now this is december 1946 when pakistan was not at even formed there was not even though jinnah had talked about it and talked about that maybe we will be a separate nation and other things two nation theory was still i would say in an embryonic stage i wouldn't say it was non existent i would say it was in an embryonic stage but even at that time nehru had envisioned that there will be a minority in this country and we need to protect the minorities right. and let me tell you article 25 onwards till 31 is an absolute disaster mm-hmm. and the day we thought that protection of minorities is of paramount importance and and by and we don't give them actually protection mm-hmm. and the protection offered to the minorities is to abuse the majority this is a very perverse uh you know protection that we give to the minorities that we will abuse the hindus we will call ma durga anything we will we, and in 70s at least your state did not have that ignominy my state has that that ramchandra murti and uh, ganesh bhagwan's uh, murtis were all uh, adorned with uh, uh, garland of slippers that that is the level to which we had plummeted and this is a land of great philosophies this is the land of great spirituality now my way of prayer and your way of prayer may be entirely different our words are not tolerate our this acceptance 
I I shudder to use the word tolerance because tolerance is condescending in more ways than one. That I tolerate you because I have to some or other breathe to you. But acceptance is acceptance in total. I love you. I adore you. Though I may not be you, but I accept you. Ours is acceptance. Now this unfortunately was given a short shrift as early as 13th December 1946, within the first few days of the constitution. Of course, secularism was smuggled into the constitution in 1975, as you rightly pointed out during emergency. 42nd amendment brought in, in the words secularism. And I think both socialism and secularism have killed more number of Indians than any amount of invasion by any uh, foreign armies or any amount of pandemics in India. We, we have killed ourselves. We have shot ourselves in the foot. We have lost our civilizational disconnect uh, to the past. And, and we have elevated secularism to a state religion. India doesn't have a state religion officially, but secularism has become the state religion. And we have shot ourselves in the foot by using these two words. And these two words have no meaning or relevance in Indian context. And both these things must be dropped. And this is one, yet again, a reason why the constitution has to be revisited. revisited. Speaking of Baba Sahib, uh, he was a strong supporter of the Uniform Civil Code. And uh, yet more than 70 years later, we are unable to incorporate the relevant understanding of um, nuances of Indian society to establish one. Um, what are your thoughts on the same? <clears throat> See, my view is that first thing is nobody has seen what an Uniform Civil Code looks like. Everybody is it is like six blind men looking at the elephant and each one describing it. Till a document is released by the government and says this is the draft code, I cannot answer it in vacuum. Correct. Second, I am deeply suspicious that any document from any government will inherently be biased against the Hindus. <laughs> That is my suspicion. I, 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 I hope and pray that I'm proved wrong. But I have a deep suspicion given the track record of the government of India of the last 70 years. The third point, uniformity is basically a Christian concept. But before this uh, program, I was reading a book which mm -hmm. talked about Roman Romanization of the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, And since then, many of this uniformity I, uniform ideas comes from Romanization, which is nothing but globalization. The modern globalization has its roots in the Romanization. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about unity, when we talk about uniform civil code, there are several contours to it, which even the Hindu society, much less leave around the Muslim Sikh or the Christian Jain or any other samudaya, leave them aside. Even the Hindus will find it difficult to box themselves into a particular code. Unless the code is so flexible. And till such time I read it out and I, I have gone through some of these suggestions also. People make it. But when you ask them what if, for instance, for instance, I tell you, uh, we marry in South. Uh, 
cousins uh boas daughter or uncles uh, uncles daughters you know, they they get married uh, within the family but this is not a practice which i find it in the northern part of the country okay northern part of the country cousins getting married is very rare now do you accept this as a code or do you reject it as a code right these are challenges even within the hindu community so unless we uh see something very concrete and i have so many questions i don't have an answer frankly so on this i would i would rather say that let me wait and see what it could ideally be it it may be an ideal destination point but unfortunately sometimes the destinations are kept as uh, uh, destination points rather than achieving them uh, it it is best left to a future date because we don't know what it would actually uh, bring about right absolutely um another point which has been of relevance and of interest is that of uh, conversion especially because um there have there have been many malified many um you know under uh, the surface means of um um well misleading people uh, in 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 villages in various tribal areas for instance uh, by different groups uh, evangelical groups uh, and there has been a thrust for uh, anti conversion laws uh, for ways to protect uh, people uh, against such things from happening um so i would like to know from you what are your thoughts on the same and whether uh, one could kind of move forward in this direction how can we provide that protection to the people <clears throat> some states have it right and some states like tamil nadu jayalalitha tried it in 2004 mm-hmm. and uh, or 2002 or 2003 and she had a spectacular failure in 2004 electoral defeat right and one of the reasons attributed to such electoral defeat was that she was having an alliance with bjp mm-hmm. and two that she brought in anti conversion law three that she broke the back of the government employees who were on a strike so she was taking on both socialism and secularism in one go the modern day secularism and the modern day socialism and she had to bite a uh, you know it was it was absolute bad thrashing and bajpay also as a result bajpay also lost uh, the elections now coming back to this question about anti conversion law when you have a freedom to profess and if uh be uh, you know conversion is an integral part of my religion and you allow me under the constitution to do such activities evangelical activities and you also say you can even convert by force you can convert by allurement you can convert by coercion you can uh, you can convert by whatever means hmm. that part of it if at all can be taken under ipc suppose you threaten me to convert by a point of a gun and i get converted and best i can take an action on you for pointing a gun not for converting me and these conversion law are not a test under under any serious court and these these laws have been running but they lack the teeth also let us be very clear states which have actually um, uh, brought in these laws they are more than ornamental just ornamental pieces of legislation they are not actually put in practice now i have not seen a state which says i have taken action on somebody because they have violated this conversion law and this has not come under the challenge of a constitutional court a high court or a supreme court 
tested under Article 25.26, the right to profess religion, and say that conversion is an integral part of both Abrahamic faiths, and hence are intravires the constitution and not ultravires the constitution. This entire range has not happened. And if, if you want to put an end to conversion, laws are not adequate because there will be a conflict between the law and the constitution and any student of law will tell you whenever there is a conflict between the state legislation and the constitution, the constitution will prevail. So we need the constitutional amendment and article 25, 26. That is why I believe that one of the reasons why we need to revisit the constitution is that the Hindu civilization must be protected. Yeah. This is a unique civilization. And it is not merely to say that this is a heritage value. This is, this is a functional civilization right. and it needs to be protected because others are, are uh, a force that, that, they, that they are, uh, are putting it under constant attack. Yeah. It is under constant threat. And there are indigenous societies which comes under the large umbrella of word called Hinduism. There are tribals, there are uh, people who have uh, unique faiths, unique customs. For instance, uh, your uh, part of the country marriages are held at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. Uh, whereas we do it very early in the morning after sunrise. So everything is unique. But broadly, they may come under the definition of Hinduism. But each one has to be protected. But if each one is under uh, uh, an attack day in and day out, I think it is incumbent on the state to step in and see this as a threat to the civilizational ethos of this country and protect it not through enactment of laws at the state level. This must be a central intervention is required. The central government has to intervene and for which we require a constitutional amendment. The what contours of it is probably for scholars to debate it further and you know as lawyers to put it in writing. But the existent, existing uh, infrastructure and framework does not lend confidence to the fact that we will be fighting conversion spectacle. Of course, this government has done something spectacular. I must also say this in the same breath, that they have taken a war on this uh, NGOs through the FCRA. Yes. FCRA was basically used as a route to evangelical activities and illegal conversions. I think that they have put an end, but more has to be done. Some several steps have to be taken. One of them should be a constitutional amendment, which says that you cannot convert anybody. Right. Okay, that may be integral to your faith, but you cannot convert anybody by allurement. If somebody wants to convert by himself, but that must be a very strictly and uh, you know uh, enacted constitutional amendment. Uh, another point which uh, has been of debate lately, of course, and for a while has been that of reservation and positive affirmation. Um, recently, there has been a debate going on in the US Supreme Court, uh, which relates to uh, Harvard University, um, where the idea of positive affirmation and quotas uh, for, uh, you know, uh, students from ethnic, uh, you know, minority backgrounds um, uh, has been uh, challenged. Uh, it has been a debate that has been ongoing and uh, potentially uh, Harvard University may not, uh, you know, pull through in that particular case. Um, and in India, of course, we have had this ongoing debate about how we should comprehensively think about reservation, uh, you know, what socioeconomic, uh, you know, aspects uh, can be taken into consideration for that. 
Um, so what are your thoughts on that and how can we move forward on that front? <clears throat> See, reservation is a very touchy issue in India. Yes. And uh, it is politically incorrect for any political party, given the fact that today OBC's vote share uh, ranges anywhere between 20 to 60% in various states. And uh, it could be the lowest in Kerala because the Hindu population itself is very low. Okay. So uh, given that type of situation, uh, I don't think that we are going to do away with the reservation in the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. And there is no scholarly approach, even in amongst academicians to say, let us look at uh, a study on the positive impact of reservation. Right. At least three generations have taken reservation. Let us see how much it has impacted the society. And yeah, any any scheme will have its own downsides. Let us do a uh, balance and find out if the the benefits outweigh the negatives. Unfortunately, no university in India, no scholar, not, not any government or private universities have come forward with a study which itself shows to what extent we want to close our eyes to this scourge of uh, reservations. Now, if you ask me reservation, should it be banned? Yes, it should be banned. Ideally, yes. But the consequence of that would be so bad on the current political scenario that even probably Modi may find it difficult to even uh, win 2024, which today at this point in time, everybody says it's a given. But so, so it, it would be advisable that there can be probably a study, there can be, you know, in India, everything has to move from the bottom. It cannot be a top-down approach. It cannot be that you and I want it or don't want it. Right. Ideally, there must be a study. Now, let, let us do a honest study about this. Yes. See if there could be some scholar uh, coming out with a presentation as to whether large sections of the communities are benefited or is it again in a narrow uh, silo you know of the community some portion of it have only done it whether we can tweak the creamy layer part of it all yes. these things can be probably uh, looked into and then probably we can think whether reservation has to continue reservation today is basically a political issue it has nothing to do with economics right right and it is basically to ensure that the next elections are not fought on reservation and de-reservation. Right. It is fought on something else. So, so this is this issue is kept as a moribund issue. It is it is kept in the freezer. Nobody wants to pull it out of the locker. And yeah. in my view, also rightfully today, we 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 cannot afford this chaos. Yeah. Right. right. Absolutely. I, I still remember when Lalu Prasad, I think, was uh, you know gave that statement and that you know we get rid of reservation and the next day you'll be losing your ele- the elections i think it was uh, to the uh, to the sang uh, i mean he was mentioning about that a while back um another topic which is of interest to hindus in particular and which uh, subramaniam swami has been talking of at length uh, is that of uh, the nationalization of temples uh, and temples have been at the center of uh, hindu spirituality and culture uh, in the indian constitution article 31a1b 
uh, speaks of taking over of the management of any property by the state for a limited period, uh, either in the public interest or in order to secure the proper management of that particular property. Uh, but what we see is a much more widespread problem than a selective acquisition. Uh, and uh, Hindus have benefited over the ages from the decoupling of the spiritual and the political. Um, so how do in this particular uh, issue, uh, do you think we can move forward uh, in contemporary times? <clears throat> See, temple administration doesn't bother much of North Indians because thanks to the Mohammed Ghaznis and the Ghoris and the Aurangzeb, much mm. of the temples have been raised to the ground. South of India, we have huge number of temples. And I'm told there is around 40,000 temples in the state of Tamil Nadu, which is administered by the HR and CA department. That's humongous, 40,000 temples and each one and could be 1,000, uh, several of them could be 1,000, 1,500 years old. These are all heritage sites. These are all spiritual powers uh, centers or, or uh, you know, Shakti Peets or, or has like Madurai temple and all. You can't measure it by any any yardstick known to mankind. So Madurai, Tirupati, all these are our pride. And, and uh, unfortunately, these are all given to executive officers and uh, the government hierarchy and where a uh, huge amount of loot is going on. The, the, the loot, in fact, uh, I appeared for uh, Mr. T.R. Ramesh and uh, one of the GO was to convert temple lands into lands for the poor in the sense illegal occupants uh, could be regularized through this geo and believe it or not it is around 100,000 acres of land in possession of temples which according to some people could be 100 lakh crores <laughs> you know a, a type of money that they talk about is right. uh, 1 lakh crores or 100 lakh crores this is a sum of money that they were talking about is smuggled right. now the point I'm trying to emphasize is this the temples uh, against what the state should do because it is duty bound to do because it's a welfare state. Mm. Now, a welfare state thinks that it can rob Peter mm. and pay Paul. Never mind if uh, Peter is Lord Rama himself, that it can put the hands into Rama's uh, shirt, take out the currency notes and pay Peter, uh, pay, uh, pay Paul. Now, the point here is very simple. What Dr. Swami says is one half of the problem. Temples must be nationalized. Then do you mean to say joint secretary should be sitting on every temple and administrating? Should the state look into it? The better way would be to hand it over to trustees, hmm. which is what HR and CE Act in its original avatar talked about. Right. Hand it over to local communities, local people, identify and leave it to the local people to administer and ensure that the Prevention of Corruption Act is extended to those trustees and those trustees shall be deemed to be public servants in so far as Prevention of Corruption Act is concerned. Probably we need to strike a via media, say that state will not interfere. Nationalization of temples is no, maybe uh, a possibility for Mathura and uh, Gyanavapi Mosque. Uh, or a Galvapi temple. But to say that my Madurai temple or Tirupati temple should come under the same formula, 
is something that i am not agreeable in the sense my problem sitting from the southern part of the country is slightly different uh, from those in the northern part for instance i will tell you uh, in the northern part uh, people say that the places of worship act should be removed it is a challenge and an affront to the civilization but we here have argued that the places of worship act protects me from maintaining my temple in the same way as of third, uh, 15th of august 1947 because the temple existed in the north the temple did not exist so you find that the uh, places of worship act itself is a challenge whereas for me it is a protection so there are so you so india is a very peculiar country you cannot have one size fit all so what right. dr swami says may fit all uh, may fit in upwards of vindhyas uh, or downwards of vindhyas and i i would say that probably he needs to have a rethink on this right um you recently retorted to sanjay jha who's <laughs> very very uh, well uh, active is, is is a word for it uh, claimed that 2014 to 2024 would be india's lost and dark decade by calling it india's best um what do you see as the major points of interest that we as a people uh, need to focus on in the days ahead to help bharat uh, become the vishwa guru that it has always been uh, in the days past <clears throat> see the traditional indian respect for knowledge has to come in we were a civilization which prided itself on knowledge and through knowledge we earned our prosperity through prosperity we did our charity and and kept away poverty we did not celebrate poverty india was never poor historically till the last two centuries the reemergence of india in my in my considered opinion would be from respecting knowledge and that is easier said than done because what i find as a big challenge today in india is that we don't have international standards of universities and colleges yes. that where i i don't mind people going to microsoft or google for employment Mm-hmm. but i do mind if people go to georgetown and uh, yale and uh, harvard for their education mm-hmm. that if we start doing it for the next 10 years mm-hmm. and champion that madras university has done a study on say reservation impact right. and that is seen as some sort of a benchmark that is quoted in the us yes cases as to how reservation works or doesn't work and is quoted by harvard to support its point or by the opponents to say that this doesn't work in a country like india where it has uh, endured it for 70 years you know madras university would be doing itself a great deal but when did it when did calcutta university madras university bombay delhi you name it have produced one paper of some international class that we as indians feel that we should go and refer it so that is that is the saddest part and once you cure that and why is it that we are not done it is not that we can't write why is it our own students who go abroad write such wonderful thesis why is it that they can't sit down here and write it what is it that is lacking charent hrd ministry i am sorry to say this the hrd ministry is our biggest achilleshi it it is it is unable to conjure ways that would 
uh, satiate the demands of uh, uh, the modern uh, economy and the modern indian mindset we 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 want we want to have knowledge we want recognition for the knowledge international standard is to have recognition for the uh, knowledge now i write and say let us assume that i write a standard on accounting now who is there to say that this is a standard that is accepted in say the world of finance it has to be the institute of chartered accountants of india but the institute of chartered accountants of india takes pride in cutting and pasting cut copy pasting from the international uh, standards touted by somebody without realizing where is this i i i i have international financial board where is it located what is it doing who are the owners of such a board Uh, nobody worries as long it comes from any any country which is uh, uh, a gora country a white country we are so happy to adopt the standard and that is what is killing us that that colonial mindset the mindset of accepting that the westerner is right and that needs to be adopted we don't have to labor so there is a there is a two prong challenge the challenge is that the process itself is uh, doubtful the process is a very big problem the uh, mindset is another problem right absolutely and i think that that uh, beautifully sums up uh, our discussion that uh, that idea of decolonization of finding ourselves uh, because it is at that level that we need to uh, you know grow into ourselves we need to find ourselves and move forward as a as a confident as a realized uh, nation as a people who have had uh, a glorious heritage who have had uh, so much in terms of civilizational uh, legacy uh, to to bank upon and yet we need to move forward into the future to sustainable future as such uh, thank you sir for joining us today it was a wonderful discussion with you um and uh, we look forward to having you again on the channel uh, and thank you all for listening namaskar namaskar